0: If you hadn't noticed, some of you are sitting not in pews but in the brown chairs because uh, construction moves along here. Yeah, I know, it's a little different. Construction's moving along. The, uh, the cut between this, this sanctuary and that one will happen sometime in the next week or so, and that's why all the plastic is down. Uh, I'm also hoping that the driveway, the little roundabout up front here so you can drive and drop people off, will be poured sometime this week or next. And so just look forward to those things, and we'll start, as we already start seeing now, construction bleeding over into this sanctuary, but it's exciting, and uh, the sanctuary is coming along. Uh, It means that soon all of y'all who are sitting over in the multipurpose building watching this on a screen uh, will be joining everybody in here in one worship service together, and we'll get to rejoice together and praise the Lord together. I'm really looking forward to this. I know that this will be the most difficult, though, for those of you who really like sitting at a table (laughs) over on the other side. For people who really like personal space, uh, then getting to sit next to somebody in a pew may not not seem like the best thing. However, getting to worship with the congregation, actually getting to gather in one room when we gather up to worship the Lord will be a great joy, and I I look forward to doing it. In the meantime, as we just finished uh, going through the book of Jeremiah together, and once we do start meeting in the new sanctuary sometime in September… Uh, when we do start meeting in the, uh, we'll leave it tentative. Don't don't quote me on anything. But uh, once we are able to meet in there, uh, I think it's appropriate in a new sanctuary that we begin with the Sermon on the Mount and start going through Jesus's sermon together. So between then and or between now and then, uh, it's pastor's choice uh, on sermons. We're not going through anything. Uh, I'm just uh, giving you some passages that I want to. And so today I want to help you answer. A question that is not well answered in our culture and community, uh, there's profound and tragic confusion over a simple question, and the question is this, what is a woman? And so, I, you can chuckle, and you should because it's such a basic, simple question, and yet so tragic, so profound is the confusion of the world. But God has spoken clearly to us and not left us confused. And so let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, to read the Word of the Lord together and to rejoice at how this great God has made each and every one of us perfectly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is our text for today. I'm reading in the Pew Bible or the Table Bibles if you're over there. Either way, the House Bibles is the one I'm reading out of. And you can open up to page 1. Uh, If you'd like to follow along with me today. That's not actually... Yeah, it is. Page one. (laughs) Today, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God has created the world and everything in it. He has created it beautifully and artistically, and He's created it brilliantly as an engineer, and in all ways it is perfect, and then He goes about creating... Us, man and woman, let us pray and then let us read the Word of the Lord today. Father God, it is such a joy to gather and worship You. It is such a joy to know that Your Holy Spirit is on us today, that You, Jesus, our risen Lord, walk among Your congregations today. It is such a joy to have Your Word in front of us, it is such a joy that you speak clearly to us. So if all there is left is for us to believe it and obey it, well then, Holy Spirit, give us strength today to believe and to obey. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fishes of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface, of the entire earth, every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and so it was. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day." The creation account is so beautiful and perfect. This powerful God of ours is is not just powerful enough to create all things, He is powerful enough to create them by speaking them into being. It's always wonderful that on the first day, God says, let there be light, and light shows up. But then the objects that create light, sun, moon, stars, they don't even show up until the fourth day. Light simply begins existing so that it can obey Him, and all things come into existence by His will and at His command, so powerful is our God. But there's also such organization to it all. And so much of creation is what you might call the act of not just creating, but discerning, separating out the sky from the things beneath the sky, separating out the land and the sea, rightly separating things, which is the act of discernment anyway, knowing where things ought to go and how they ought to function. Our God is not just powerful, our God is wise and creates perfectly. But then, and important to all of us, Two verses that have been incredibly important in explaining who we are and who we are in relation to God, a question that everyone has to answer, a question that all philosophies and religious systems attempt to answer in one way or another. Who are we? How did we get here? What are we doing? Is there God and what's our relationship to that God? It's answered for us in this way, God said... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule. And in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. First, as far as we go in creation... So much time has been spent speculating and thinking and just being in awe of how similar we are to other creatures in creation. After all, a creature, that word means something that's created, yeah? A creature, a created thing. And we, after all, are also creatures, are we not? We are created. And so so much time gets spent it's always so interesting and exciting to see what you think of as human characteristics in animals. And a lot of time has been spent studying this sort of thing and seeing how similar we are to the rest of creation. And in fact, we are a part of creation, created by God just like everything else. So the similarities are shocking and, and incredible and sometimes beautiful. The idea that you can transplant organs into a human from other animals, like was recently transplanted a pig heart into a person. But it's also fascinating to look at other animals and creatures, look at chimpanzees and see how they socialize and create groups, and it's somewhat similar to how we socialize and create groups. Or to to look at dolphins and realize how intelligent they are, which is incredible to see. Until you're fishing and you're trying to catch other fish, and then it's frustrating how intelligent the dolphins are because you just got to move on somewhere else. They're too smart for you, and they're uh, they're better fishermen. If they want their bait, your bait, they'll just take it. They're not going to be on the hook. They're just going to take it. It is fascinating. You've been fascinated, yes, to look and see characteristics of humanity in creation because we're a part of creation. To see intelligence, to see socialization, to see similar anatomy in different ways, and to marvel at the way all of these things and all of us are, are creatures. We're a part of God's creation. But it also is really important for us to understand we're not like the rest of creation. Amen. Created by God, creatures, but not just creatures, wild creatures. We are separated in this, this fact. We are created in the image of God. What a powerful statement. And I mean, what, how honorable it is and how honored we are that God would speak God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying amongst themselves, amongst Himself, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our likeness, He says it's sometimes difficult to answer what it is that the image of God is for us. And it ought to be, but suffice it to say we're not like the rest of creation, you understand. The rest of creation has similarities to us but not like us. The rest of the creatures don't manage forests, not intelligently, not specifically. They don't manage flocks. They don't stock lakes. The rest of creation doesn't rule and subdue and steward creation in the same way that we are to steward creation. There's some cute similarities, but it's just not even remotely the same thing. You can teach certain animals to speak quite a bit of words, right? But it's nothing like the way that we speak. you can teach a parrot to speak hundreds of words, but you can never teach a parrot, uh, famously said, but you can never teach a parrot to say, my parents were humble but honest people. You know, that that concept of how do you explain even simple concepts an animal cannot do? They have intelligence. They have the ability to speak some words, but it's mimicry, and the way we speak is not like the way they do. We write. We, like the great Creator, our God, create ourselves things, wild, beautiful, sophisticated things. You know, there's a couple different kinds of awe. And they're all worth having. You know, it's beautiful to go to the Grand Canyon and just be in awe of God's great creation. It's also impressive to go and be in awe of some of the things created by man, whether it is dams (laughs) that can provide power and energy and life to so many people, the complexity of a wristwatch, or even, I'll tell you, maybe the most beautiful creation of man, the air conditioner. (laughs) Yeah, I need an amen out of this one. Am I not right on that one? important invention. Some of you at your places of work, they haven't discovered this invention yet, but it's on its way. We're not like the rest of creation. There are some similarities because we're creatures, but we're also not the same. And so we Christians have a way to answer how we are both like creatures, and there are similarities, but how we are different and distinct as well, and it is this. We are created like the rest by the same God, but we are created differently, created in the image of God. Now, there's a lot being created in the image of God is rather something that you ought to sit back and think about at length, rather than coming up with a simple trite answer for all of that which it entails to be created in the image of God. It means a lot of things, but for our purposes today, perhaps we ought to simply take our meaning from the passage itself. If we are to be created in the image of God, verse 26, God said, let us make man our image and our likeness. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. The stewardship and dominion, the way we run things and are to organize things, the command, the very blessing of God, it is said later in this passage. They are blessed to say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The concept that all nature, all, everywhere should be pristine and left alone and that we're only detrimental to it is not entirely true. Nature preserves are incredible to get to go see some natural things, but we're to be stewards and good stewards of the earth subdue it. Things like controlled burns are incredibly important, and that's us doing what we are supposed to do. A tree, a plant is beautiful, and all the more beautiful is one that is pruned and well kept, one that has been, plants that have been bred in order to produce more and to produce greater and to remove famine. We're created in God's image. We are not just like everything else. There are similarities because we're creatures, but we're image bearers of God. And then it says this you'll notice there, verse 27. It's not like the, just physically, the way it looks on the page, it's not like the other verses around it. It's poetry. God moves into song, essentially. And it, it's beautiful in its words as it is in creation. So God created them. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And there it is from the very beginning male and female are the way God has created us it is what God has done and orchestrated and after creating each thing each day he creates light and he says it's good he creates he separates things out he says it's good plants and vegetation it's good animals it's good and then he creates humans and he sees it all put together and at the end of this passage God says it's very good this is it. This is the way it should be. My creation is right. And my creation is right with human, male and female, as stewards over all things, created male and female, and in the image of God, running things the way He planned. You know, the uh, foreign illustration, by way of illustration, when uh, America was being founded and the founders of America were trying to put together the Constitution, some document and bill of rights, and have to negotiate together over all these states, negotiating together what they would need and what they were willing to sign and what they weren't willing to sign, and have these founders trying to predict the issues that would arise. I suggest to you Uh, They did an excellent job. The Constitution is itself a work of art. They did an excellent job of predicting the sort of behavior that's common to humans and has been common to humans at their time and is now. They did a very good job of articulating what should be articulated. And surely, though, there have been plenty of people, you perhaps as well, who have kind of wished they would have phrased this thing differently or that thing differently over time, right? Maybe if they could have defined a well-regulated militia a little bit better, there would have been a little bit more clarity about some of these things. Perhaps you've thought, gosh, if they would only have included this piece, if they had had the foresight to think about this or to think about that, you might say, gosh, if they only had the foresight to define man and woman or to define marriage, it would have saved some people some headaches later on down the road. And they didn't because who could foresee, you know, who would... You also don't have to define other things, you know, simple basic things that they didn't put in there. Though it's a beautiful document, the Constitution, it's not like Scripture in this way. It's not, when we read Scripture, we're not to read here at the beginning and say, ah, see, God had the perfect foresight to write this in such a way that these issues would be addressed from the very beginning. It's actually the opposite. All sin and rebellion exist because of how God created it. See, If there is the enemy of God, Satan, if there is a rebellion, and if people are to rebel against God, then it's not to say that God had to predict their rebellion, it's to say they have to rebel against the way He made it. And so, we Christians recognize all sin to be rebellion against the way God made things to be all sin our sin as well a rebellion against how God designed us to function and what he designed us to do if God is truth then the rebellion is to lie if God is clarity then the rebellion is to try and confuse the issue If God is good, then the rebellion is to do evil. If God is loving to your neighbors, then the sin is to be evil, hateful, or spiteful to your neighbors. Do you understand? It's not that God had the foresight to predict these things. It's rather that all things that are sin and are wrong are simply against what God has declared good and right and beautiful. This is how we Christians understand the nature of sin. So, we're not surprised that even the way God created things, even in the most basic ways that we can go back to page one, that the things of page one are rebelled against as well. Not in a new way, not in a novel way, although it is new and novel in many ways, but to say this is the nature from the beginning of sin. You merely have to turn the page to chapter three before the very first thing that God has commanded is rebelled against and negated. God said, you will surely die. But you know what? You won't surely die. Go ahead and disobey Him. We Christians are not surprised. We just simply understand the nature of what sin and rebellion are. Because we have all been a part of sin and rebellion against God's ways. Every last one of us. So we understand what it is to hear and to read very clearly something that God created And to ourselves, do the opposite. It's a joy for us, as I said earlier, that God speaks so clearly. All that is left is, will we believe it? Will we recognize it for what it is? And will we obey Jesus Christ as our Lord? To do so is very good and to not do so is sin and evil and worthy of punishment. So, what should we do today, given the way that God created things, perfectly and beautifully? What should we do? How, how will we go about living our lives, given that God has created us in His image, as He's created all things, He created us, but He created us specially in His image. We are different from and above to rule over creation." And what does it mean that He created us male and female? Well, first of all, you need to recognize the centrality and the beauty of God's creation in your own life. God created all things perfectly. It's broken by sin, but He created it perfectly. In our world, there are, in our country, in our culture, to speak to us specifically, there are two very specific kinds of rebellion against God's design in this way. One, there is the naturalistic rebellion against God. This idea, materialist, naturalistic way, there's there's nothing spiritual, we're just animals like everybody else. You see this frequently in the sciences. In the sciences, for the most part, what you hear is, yeah, yeah, people should be studied just the same way you study other animals because we are just other animals evolved differently and in different ways, but just a part of creation, and there's no divine peace to humans. And so, in a lot of ways, the divine portion of us is removed, and you simply can't get the right answer if you don't know what the thing is, and that it's you and I can't be studied properly if you don't understand that we are both creatures, but we are creatures created in the divine image. And you won't get us right unless you understand that there's a soul and a spirit as well going on within us, that God has created us, body, soul, and spirit. So, this naturalistic rebellion is ultimately unsatisfactory, right? It, it just doesn't satisfy. Every last, we all know we're not just like the rest of creation, right? That's not startling or new news to you. And everyone else starts to know it as well. And so, it, it's simply a deficient view. The other view, I would suggest, is more popular. We could call it the Gnostic view, but that's a word from the early church that you don't necessarily need to know. Suffice it to say, the idea is this. Who you are, who I am, what's real isn't physical. It's emotional or spiritual. It's the Gnostic idea. The early, the early heresy, the Gnostics said, you know what? God didn't create all this stuff. Somebody else created it because things matter is bad and spirit is good, and God would have created bad things, but, but things are bad, and so what you got to do is escape the body because the spirit is good, but it's trapped in here, and it's different from the body, which is bad and wrong. And that attitude continues to prevail in our society, does it not? I mean, the attitude about humans that is popular today is this. You are how you feel, and your body is what's wrong, your body, how you're created, that's not who you are. Who you are is somewhere inside there, and you have to figure out who you are by how you feel. But a body is wrong, and you have to change it in order to reflect the way you're feeling because it is feelings or sentiment that's real. You understand? That's the… <laughs> we would… Thank you, Sonia… appreciate that." <laughs> the answer the question is really this, who, do, who defines who you are? It's how you're created. That to, we would answer that to be born a woman is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God that He chose for you. To be born a man is a gift from God, it is a blessing. It is not good that there be man alone. God said it is not good in chapter 2, so he creates woman and now it's good. that Man and woman is to be made either one and both in the image of God. So God decides who you are in your identity. But in a time in which identity and figuring it out and being able to decide what your own identity is and how you ought to have complete control over your identity, well then in that, who decides if you're male or female? however you feel that day, whatever you think. It's not decided by God. It's decided by your will, not His will. And being decided by your will, you ought to be able to identify however you want to. But this is a foolish rebellion against nature. It's nonsensical and doesn't even make sense. It is the emperor's new clothes. You can try to acknowledge as much as you want that the emperor is wearing the most beautiful clothes, oh, how wonderful it is, but at the end of the day, he's still parading through town naked as the story goes. This lie that you are who you feel you should be and you ought to be able to identify yourself is particularly pernicious for children and teenagers because you all remember being a teenager and not feeling at home in your own body, right? I mean, it's the nature of adolescence and puberty to not recognize yourself when you wake up in the morning. And it's the nature to not feel at home in your own body. This is a part of growing up and becoming an adult. You wake up in the morning, you don't even recognize yourself or the odor. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're suddenly two inches taller and you don't know how to put one foot in front of the other, and again, you have to learn how to re-walk one more time. Your voice betrays you and cracks on you. I mean, a part of adolescence is feeling, is feeling not at home in your own body. Don't you, do you remember this? So, this lie that who you are is who you feel to be, not who God has created you to be, is particularly harmful to those who are the youngest. Because they could easily be sold on the fact, hey, you know how you don't recognize yourself anymore and your body's changing and all? Why don't you take control of those changes and you make it the way you want it to be? This is, a, this is a great evil to sell this to children and to sell this to youth when all the rest of us know it's patent nonsense. You don't have to be a Christian to understand basic biology. And likewise, you don't have to be a Christian to humbly recognize you are not in control. Of all things. But we Christians have it even better because we know that God made us right. God made you right when he made you a woman and God made you right when he made you a man, whichever it is that he made you. The fact that some of us are born with birth defects one way or another, whether it affects (laughs) whatever part of your body it affects, doesn't negate the creation The way it's supposed to be. Birth defects happen. This is the way it is in a fallen world, but that doesn't negate the plan and the expectation of God. Neither does it that, again, you may have to live longer than being a teenager, but at some point your body starts to betray you in another way. It starts to break down on you and you wake up with back pain. Yeah, what's that about? But this also doesn't negate God's right correction, uh, God's right creation. We're just to understand: we live in a broken world, and we even our bodies are broken by sin. Not only is our desires stained by sin, so that we desire things that aren't good for us, but our bodies are broken too. And here, look, they come to break down. We are made in the image of God but we don't often live in the likeness of God. This is one of those interesting parts of this passage that we might skip over because it's not necessarily the way we read Scripture here, but to the early Christians who are reading this passage, the most important thing that they understood, the early Christians, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and all these guys whose names you don't need to know, uh, when they read this, the most important thing that they read was this, verse 26, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. But then the very next verse, verse 27, God created us in His image. Well, what about the likeness part? He says in verse 26, let's create man in our image, in our likeness, and then in the next verse He creates man in His image, but the likeness part is not there. To the early Christian believers, they would say God has created you in His image, And now your life is about turning yourself into the likeness of God. This time and this place is about you conforming to the likeness of him. That in verse 27, he creates you in his image and the rest of history is about him conforming humans to his likeness. And that's what your life is about now to be found, made in the image of God, and so offer yourself to Him so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, He can conform you to His likeness now. Christians, what are we going to do? Recognize the centrality and the beauty of God's creation in your life, but then recognize also that while you are created in the image of God, you don't necessarily find yourself acting in the likeness of God. But to become a Christian is to turn away from sin, evil, and rebellion and to say, Jesus, you will be my Lord, and I will change my life to be in the likeness of your life. And then by the power of God's own Holy Spirit who comes upon us, we, day by day, mold ourselves as we are being molded by him to the likeness so that when Christ returns, we will be both in the image of God but also in the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us rejoice, brothers and sisters. Many have asked, well, what do we do about this crazy fallen world we live in? A question you might have been wanting to answer the whole time. Okay, how do I talk to people around me? You know, if my kid has a school teacher who wants to be addressed not as a mister or a miss, but as something else in between or other, what am I supposed to do? How do we live in such a broken world? How do we live with neighbors that do not believe this or are perhaps angrily, angry at us that we do? I would, to answer your question, thanks for asking, <laughs> I would direct you to last week's sermon. Pull out last week's sermon out of 2 Timothy chapter 2 where we said three things. First of all, Paul tells Timothy as he's leading the church, don't get caught up in foolish squabbles. Don't argue over words, but just tell the truth clearly and completely. Is that not what Paul said to Timothy? As Timothy is leading the church, he says, don't, don't squabble over words and definitions. Don't get caught up in nonsense. Don't try to redefine words. Just very clear, if you, Paul says to Timothy, if you want to be approved as a good worker before Christ, just tell them the truth give them the Word of God fully and completely. And then Paul says to Timothy, second, and by the way, you have to live your own life in holiness before God. says there's all kinds of vessels in the house. Do you remember Paul saying this to Timothy? There's all kinds of different objects in God's house, and he uses all of them for his purposes, but you know which ones he uses? The ones that have been purified first. So, likewise, live holy lives, tell the truth, tell it honestly, tell it kindly, live a holy life before the Lord, and then finally, how does that go there in 2 Timothy chapter 2? Paul says to Timothy, because who knows, just maybe, that with your clear telling of the Word of God and your patience, Paul calls Timothy to be patient with these foolish people, with your patience towards them and your kindness towards them and your speaking clearly the truth towards them, they might come to know Christ's grace just like you have and avoid judgment that's coming for them. See, Paul's desire is that they would come to know the truth about Jesus Christ and be converted because God's desire is that all people would come to know Him as Lord and Savior. Do you want to be an approved worker before Christ today? Then don't get caught up in nonsense. Simply kindly and patiently speak the truth, hoping and calling in all ways that people might come to trust Christ. Remembering along the way that with how divided our culture is and how politicized and how sharply and almost violently politicized our world is, there's just the one hope, and it's the gospel of Christ. And remember very clearly what James has said to you. The anger of man cannot produce the righteous requirements God desires. First thing for many of us to do will be to get angry. But you have to remember, James chapter 2, the anger of man cannot produce the righteous requirements that God wants. Because God has desired for you to be converted and saved, and God has desired for them to be converted and saved. Brothers and sisters, let us compel all men in every way that we can to put their trust in Christ. If you're the sort of of person who was really hoping for an illustration from Harry Potter today, I've got good news for you. It's time. In the first book of Harry Potter, you know, there's there's a great character in the Harry Potter books that's kind of an unsung hero. He's not one of the main characters, but he's he's kind of fantastic, and his growth story is incredible, that being Neville Longbottom. Yeah? (laughs) Neville. Just stay with me, everybody else. All right? In the first book, Neville is the butt of every joke. All the jokes are on him. He can't do anything right. He falls off everything. He's just, uh, I mean, he just gets injured. He's just the joke. But by the end of the first book, he confronts the main characters. He confronts Harry and his friends and says, what you're doing is wrong. You can't do this. Do, don't do what's wrong. They don't listen to him. But by the end of the book, he is awarded the points that win his house the cup that year because, as is said to him, It takes great—it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but it takes just as much to stand up to your friends. I'll tell you that's true. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to enemies. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to friends as well, and say kindly and lovingly, "I like you the way you are. I like you the way God made you. I think the way you're going to be happy is in coming to trust Christ as your Creator." I think all the joy in the world is waiting for you if you will simply go to it by trusting Jesus as your Savior. And in all ways and in every way, we must join Christ in desiring the salvation of the people around us. Do you believe that God desires for people to be saved? This is really important. Do you believe that God actually wants to the people who are not gathered here with us today to, to be saved? Do you think Christ came and died to pay for their sins as well? You know what? For that matter, do you believe that God has dearly desired your salvation? Well, if He has, then the answer for you of what you need to do is very simple. Join Christ and desiring the salvation of other people around us, kindly, convincingly, compellingly calling them to Christ and their best life in Christ. So we need to recognize the beauty of God's creation, appreciating it for what it is. We need to understand that we are made in the image of God and then let us conform ourselves to the likeness of God. Join Christ in desiring your salvation. I've got one last point for you today, a kicker. Here's, Here's a little extra. This is what you should do today. Have hope. It is a dark world out there. But it has always been a dark world out there. But Jesus says this I have told you these things so that. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Jesus says, You will have suffering in the world. Take heart. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Have hope, friends. Christ is winning. Christ has already won. Take hope, friends. Christ will set things right. Have courage. You are going to suffer in this world and it is going to be difficult, but He has already conquered the world. Take joy and hope in this. We know how it ends. Take joy and hope in this. It's the case, I was talking to one of, uh, one of our friends to, this week whose child has amongst her teachers, one of the teacher who identifies herself as not man or woman, but something else. And so, one of our friends says to her child this past week, hey, listen, we we're going to talk about this and how God created everybody and what… And the child, sweet girl that she is, responded to her mom, oh, I already know all this, I got this, because I went to Kids Salt this summer, our children's camp. And in kids' salt, they told us four truths about life, and then four myths that people make up. And the very first truth is that God created us in His image, the way He wanted us. And the first myth is we don't change ourselves based on how we feel. Send your kids to children's church next summer, or to a children's camp next summer. Take joy, you guys. Greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Take joy and take hope, my friends. Things are dark, and in this world you will have suffering. But be courageous. And while we're being courageous and hoping in Christ, let us see if we can't help a couple other sinners trust Christ along the way. Let's pray together. Father God, I do pray for our children. We are so blessed to have them. They're so beautiful, and we love them so much, but we know we don't love them as much as you do. And so, we put all of our children into your hands, where they are, whether we say it or not. And we rejoice that these children are in your hands, God. I pray that you would help our kids to grow up to be strong, godly, kind men and women. For these children of this church, you have created them in your image. Help us to raise them in your likeness. Father, from a young age, I pray that you would call them all to trust you. I pray even now for those four to seven-year-olds, four to eight-year-olds that are over in children's worship. I pray that they'd be hearing the gospel right now and that they would believe it. Father God, we know we're going to have suffering. We know we're going to have struggles. We're not afraid. But we take courage in this. You've made us rightly. For all the wrongs, you came and died for our sins to remake us rightly. And our hope is this, that you have conquered this world. It is our joy to be yours and your creation. As I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to worship Christ. You guys, should we worship Christ again?